the driving mantra is sell more stuff. Everything is built around selling more stuff. And, and to be precise, selling more new stuff. Everything is measured. All the compensation for management, everything in that company is measured by how successful you are at selling new stuff. And in a, in a truly circular world, that's not the driver. You're listening to Green Business with Impact. Your host is Jasper Steinhausen. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having John Atkinson from Circular Way in the UK with me. John has worked in the intersection between consumers and circular economy for more than a decade. I remember I first met John at a conference here in Copenhagen, and he instantly struck me as a guy with a lot of insights uh, and has some really interesting perspectives on what he did. And what is really interesting, I think, and what we will be diving into uh, a lot here in this episode is this John has been out there on the front line and tries to understand what does it actually take to get consumers to embrace circular products or circular business models. So when I always tell people to be sure to develop all products and solutions with the consumer in mind, well, then here's a guy that has built a couple of businesses from that front line. In this episode, we will hear about a very elaborate circular business model, but inherently here, there is also a lot of good advice for business people that are building a perhaps less all out circular business concept. So you might want to bring out pen and paper, or at least make space in your head for some mental notes. And with that said, let's just dive in. So John, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about what is it actually you do? And what kind of experience do you have with the circular economy in a business context? Sure. Yeah. So um, those two things are kind of intertwined. Um, in fact, maybe I'll start with the second part of that question and kind of how I got into all of this. I actually started my career on the kind of media technology side of the world, very much in the startup space, living in Silicon Valley, working with seven big venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to take a bunch of time off. And during that time off, I had studied sustainability at university. And I, I said, I'm going to get back into this, right? I'm going to start looking into it. And, um, and from that, I got engaged with a couple of nonprofits. And one of those was a think tank based on the West Coast of the U.S. called Sightline Institute. And I ended up getting very deeply involved with them and ultimately became board chair for several years. And it was a very wonky organization, right? Just a lot of number crunching and policy thinking and all that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, highly a great organization, really, really good people and, you know, helped devise the carbon tax for British Columbia, and, you know, just a lot of things that were really fantastic. Um, but that got me into the kind of systems thinking of sustainability generally. And um, and so I started then merging my sustainability interests with my entrepreneurial instincts. And in uh, around 2010, went to a uh, San Francisco-based startup called GetAround, which was pioneering this idea of peer-to-peer -peer car sharing, kind of, you know, Airbnb for cars. Um, and it was at the forefront of the whole idea of the sharing economy and all that kind of thing. And for me, that was really about 
trying to maximize resource use. It was having these incredibly expensive, resource-intensive vehicles that sit around 92% of the time doing absolutely nothing. Um, and so that company ultimately got a lot of traction, got some really good financing, um, is now eventually a, you know, the biggest player in both the States and Europe. It's, you know, really, it's been a very good ride for them. Um, but as that got going, I started looking at all these other things consumers buy and was just amazed at how much waste there was, right? Just really kind of appalled and, um, and realizing that about 70% of all consumer products end up going into landfill, even though probably 90, 95% of those going into landfill are still totally usable. They just have no place else to go. And so that, that started me on my current journey. And in 2014, I formed a company called Stuffster. And, and very shortly after that, I was introduced to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, which is, the, I'd say, the global leader in circular economy thinking and research and organization. And, um, and so I got very tied in with them. And so very tied into the whole concept of the circular economy of trying to move from a tape, make waste type of system into this fully circular flow. Um, and Stuffster was kind of on the bleeding edge of thinking we could integrate with big brands and retailers so that their customers could seamlessly sell back things they weren't using anymore. We could put those things into the hands of people who wanted to use them or we could responsibly recycle them. And, and that, that was really a painful experience for the first several years because we began talking to consumers and saying, hey, what would get you to actually think and behave differently? And consumers don't really have an answer to that question, right? And so they would kind of, so they would just, they would just kind of tell you what, you know, what they thought, you know, would be nice at that moment. And so we would actually build prototypes and we would hand them over to the consumer and the consumer would go, oh my God, you guys are fantastic. You did exactly what I asked for. And then they'd put it down and not do anything, right? <laughs> they wouldn't use it at all. <laughs> and so, um, and so we went through an embarrassing number of iterations on that theme, um, thinking surely we're going to hit the jackpot here sooner or later, but we'll get to a, a critical mass of these services and this will start to go. And we finally got to the point where we just said, look, you know, let, let's just stop for a minute and let's step back and let's think about this and let's figure out what's really going to make things go. So looking, trying to, trying to read between the lines, what, what were people really telling us and what were they really saying? And essentially we realized that um, the only way we were going to get people to actually begin to change behavior was to completely solve this problem for them. That it wasn't a matter of making things easier. It was a matter of just eliminating any friction in this process and, and doing everything. And for us as a company, right, we were, we were digital guys. We were, you know, Silicon Valley people. We were all about creating these really slick digital tools that would enable people to do this. And we never had to get our hands dirty. We could just be in there coding. Um, and we realized that was not going to get the job done. That if we were going to solve consumers' problems, we were going to actually have to get involved in the dirty work and work on the operational end to collect these things, to process them, to put them back out, to do all the pieces that would truly take the load off of the consumer so that they could literally push a button and we would just take it all from there, right? And they would just get money for their old things and be happy. 
So what you're saying is really you got to connect different sectors, right? So you're basically coming from the IT point of view of creating the solution, but then realize, well, we got to have the transportation part as well. We got to integrate different sectors to really get this on the road. Is that the conclusion? To, yeah, yeah. I mean, to recirculate things from a consumer standpoint, you have to get involved in reverse logistics. You have to get involved in backend operations. You, you have to get involved in resale. You have to get involved in all these things that extend well beyond the digital realm. And that was that was difficult for us. That was a really big shift for us as a business and in terms of the people we had and what we were doing and everything else. Um, but we just said that that's what's necessary. And, and once you make that leap, coming up with the ultimate consumer solution isn't actually that difficult, right? I mean, as a consumer, I want you to tell me what I have, right? I don't have to want to think about what I've got. Just show me what I've already purchased and have in my house and then offer me a price for everything. And if I'm not using it and that price sounds good, I just tap this screen and then you come over and pick it up for free. Don't make me pack it up, right? Just haul it away for free and then pay me instantly regardless of condition, whatever. And, you know, that's pretty straightforward, right? If, you, if that's, if you're trying to turn on, on Haber, you know, you, you describe that to a consumer, you say, you know, we'll buy anything you, anything you purchase, we'll buy it back as soon as you're done using it, regardless of condition. They say, hey, that works for me. <laughs> the question is, how do you make a business model that actually works with that? Yes, that slightly interesting question in the back of your mind. Yes. Yes. And so, and so that was a much, greater challenge in a sense. Well, once we made the leap into saying, okay, let's do the just knock me over the head solution for consumers, then how do we make that work? And how do we really get it into play? And so we, we were able to kind of develop a model in which we, we thought, okay, these, these pieces can work. We can make this a, a profitable business. And, and we were fortunate at that time because we had a bunch of relationships with brands and retailers around the world and a group called John Lewis, which is a big retailer based in the UK, said, we love what you're doing and we'll pay you money to come from the States over to the UK and pilot this with us. Um, and that was 2018. And so we came over and we did that and it was extremely successful pilot one of the most successful pilots we ever had i mean consumers were like this is great right i just you know tap the screen just tap images of things i don't want anymore and you pay before them and, you know at that time we actually sent a courier to the door within one or three one to three hours to pick stuff up for free and all the way so you didn't have to pack it you didn't have to do anything right it was great i mean consumers were just off the charts they were like this is the best thing ever um and so from that we then um got involved in a number of different activities and number of different organizations, but primarily with, uh, with Adidas, the sportswear company, um, and did a full integration with them. And, and that was all kind of booming until the lockdown hit. And then they got into some, you know, you know, it just became a very difficult time. And even though the business was growing quickly, we, we had to shut it down during that period. Um, and in a sense, that was a blessing in disguise because it gave us a chance to to kind of take all the learnings up to that point and see where things were, where we thought they were going, and and essentially re-vector for where we thought the future was now, right? Where we thought things were going. And and also taking into account our experience of having now worked with some big brands and and really kind of reaching the realization that the big brands, that, that to be able to truly change the flow with consumers, 
it's not just about having a service on the back end of the process. If people are buying things with no intention of ever selling them back or ever really putting them to full use, and then there's no interaction with the person in that thing after the sale, if they suddenly come across an opportunity to sell it back, what we were finding is in many cases, they didn't even know what these things were anymore. They'd already thrown them out or given them away or whatever. Um, it just wasn't part of the consumer thinking. And so the, the catch on that is that to be able to start to change that consumer thinking means you need to imbue into the whole process this circular ideal. You've got to be exposing people to the idea of new and used products, of buying and lending things, um, of being able to use previous purchases as currency to get you know the next purchase. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is really that the learning was that if you don't embrace the whole idea of a circular element, when you sell it in the first place, it becomes really difficult to just, you can't just add it in. Exactly. Yeah. You got to make sure it's part of the story when they buy the shoes in this, in, in this instance, but whatever the product is, when you buy it at first hand, you actually need to already there start the communication around that there is a second loop. And, and it's the entire journey. It's not just when they first engage, you've got to stay connected with them. You've got to keep them connected with that product, keep them you know, aware of what the resale value of that product is at all times. So that it's constantly part of their thinking that I'm using this for as long as I need it. And then I'm going to capture the residual value effortlessly and apply it to something else. But that must be really, really interesting for the brands themselves because they're always struggling to how do I maintain my connection to my customers? So what were their reactions to this finding? Did they love it or was it more like, oh, this is a lot of hassle or something? Because how was the reaction from there? <laughs> um, well, it's, it was, well, it was even more fundamental than that because uh, once you really, and, and, and this gets, we're, we're kind of starting down a, a long, you know, a long tangent here, but you know, once you actually begin to look at truly circular models, you begin to bump up against the, the mindset of the industry in general. And, and we were particularly focused on the fashion industry because those are the people we'd been dealing with. Um, but I think it, you know, it flies beyond just the fashion industry, but the, the driving mantra is sell more stuff, right? Every, everything is built around selling more stuff and, and to be precise, selling more new stuff, right? I'm going to, I'm going to make more new stuff and I'm going to sell more of that new stuff. And everything is measured, all the compensation for management, everything in that company is measured by how successful you are at selling new stuff. And in a, in a truly circular world, that's not the driver, right? That's not what it's built around. What it's built around in a circular world is powering more use. It's all about maximizing the use of everything in that system. So once something is made and put out to the world, you want to get as much use of that thing as you possibly can. And then you want to be able to regenerate it into the next, you know, batch of products and put it back through the system. And that, that is a completely different mindset. Um, and it's about monetizing use. It's not about selling stuff. Yes. So, you know, in a, in a purely circular business on the consumer end for sure and i you know we haven't looked much at, at business to business but it's probably not very different right but definitely on a consumer from a consumer standpoint that business is built around the use and 
in a very short amount of time, the majority of revenue coming into that business is coming from sources other than selling new stuff, right? You're still selling new stuff because you're regenerating these things into new products and putting those products into the back in the ecosystem. And so, you know, new sales are always going to be a part of that, but they become the minority of the revenue. The majority of revenue is coming from resale, from rental, from services, from all the things around that. It sounds like a completely foreign concept and really bizarre, but you know it's actually already true in the auto business, right? If I go to a Toyota dealership, everybody thinks they're all about selling new cars, but that's not where they make most of their money, <laughs> right? No. So it's, it's kind of like a necessity. They have to sell the car. For to have the business because everything is is around. Yeah, it. yeah, but but that's not where they make their money, right? They're they, you know, and and I'm just talking about profits. I'm talking about revenue, right? Their revenue is majority driven by used car sales, by the services they offer, by parts, by all those things, right? That that's where they make their money, and um, and so this is not a bizarre concept, right? It's just cars are probably the only industry, certainly on the consumer front, where that's actually true today. Um, but ultimately, as you go into circular systems, all industries need to begin to adopt those practices and need to begin to adopt that mindset that, hey, if I can actually get this customer relationship to drive recurring revenue over the entire lifetime of these products, that's how I make money, right? That's how I'm successful. It's not just about selling this new stuff. Based on your experience here, you, you kind of already said that it's crucial to have the right mindset, yes. and it was actually the stumbling block <laughs> for, for some of your partners, but what would be the key components if you to sort of put it on a formula? What is the top five, whatever, something, components of a mindset that leads to success with a circularity in business? <laughs> I mean, you know, it... it it's a difficult question because generally, you know, what, what you bump up against is, in short, everything, right? You've got, I mean, the people in the organization are programmed to be thinking of selling more stuff. The systems are all designed around selling more stuff. The infrastructure supports selling more stuff. It is, it is really, truly a top to bottom shift. And that, that it's really hard, right? I mean, this is not... This is not something that an organization can just jump into and and do, right? I mean, you know, it's just one example, um, you know, looking at the fashion industry and what we're doing right now. And, and you know, we're, we're currently, I never quite finished your original question, right? Currently, we're, we, our company is called Circular Way, and we're building the first kind of fully circular fashion retailer. End-to-end circularity, every single product that comes in is used fully and then regenerated into the next products that go through that system. But even to offer the kind of front end of that, it requires an entirely different data structure than a typical retail operation because every single product is unique. You don't have a SKU inventory system. You have a SKU, 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 SKU system. Every product has its own identity, has its own history, and the system manages every product individually. That alone is a huge shift for anyone who's out there currently selling fashion, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
they, they have to change their whole system to be able to do that. But if you don't make that change, you can't possibly have the direct interaction with the customer around their particular product and building histories around that product and having it go from one owner to the next owner and all those kinds of things. You, you've got to be structured in that way. You've got to be able to handle that. And so that's just one piece of this broad, broad you know, ecosystem that, that needs to change as part of that mindset shift. Um, so it's really hard, right? And I think what we realized was that, you know, existing players are, are, you know, it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to make that shift, but they absolutely are going to make that shift until they, they have seen it done and been successful, right? Yeah, right. Seize. You can't just say, you know, hey, here's a great concept, you know, rip up your entire business and try this. Um, you, you've got to, you've got to go out there and, and show them how it works. And I think, you know, from from our perspective, we see this as an incredible opportunity because we we've been interacting with the consumer, right? We've been working with consumers out there on the kind of bleeding edge of that interaction, and and we are completely convinced consumers are absolutely ready for this, right? If you can give a consumer an opportunity to be able to have their shopping experience bring better value, more engagement, more fun, and and feel like they're actually helping to, you know, make the world a better place through their purchasing, they're all over it. Right? They they absolutely want to be a part of that. You know, wh why wouldn't you be? Why why would I want to I mean going back to our earlier example, right? Why would I want to buy something without being able to just push a button and give residual value for it and a five or something. And at the same time, feel like, Hey, I'm actually helping the world. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm eliminating waste. I'm reducing carbon emissions. I'm, I'm saving water. I'm doing all these fantastic things and it's benefiting me directly. Um, you know, consumers are completely, completely ready for that. Um, but the industry doesn't see it that way yet, right? They, they're still focused on the, business model shift and the implications for them. And because they've never seen it done, they're not willing to make that leap. And I, and I understand that, right? I understand why that, why that's the case, but it's what led us to our current business because we just decided that we actually do have a great read on this. We, we understand what consumers are looking for. And, and we believe we've modeled it out and we think this could be a very, very successful business. I mean, in many ways, a much, much better business than what exists today, which we can go into if, if you want to pursue that path. But um, but we can go out there and do it and kind of prove the model, prove the consumer adoption, prove the kind of systems behind it, prove the business economics that sit behind a circular model like this. And from that, the industry can, can then make their assessment and can make a decision about maybe this actually would work better for us. Maybe we should try this. Albert Einstein famously said, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. So if you want to change your business and make it thrive while making the world a better place, you need to think differently than when running a business in the traditional way. You need the right mindset. With that in place, everything else gets easier. To help you, I've created a simple self-assessment tool for you to score your current mindset and give you inputs on how you can improve it. It's free of charge, it takes less than three minutes to complete, and you can access it by going to greenprofit.scoreapp.com.
Com. That bigger game you are playing, it seems like when you go to the customer side, it has a lot of power, but what's it like? I mean, when you come and try to sell this to the business to business side, the, the value chain, where, where is this combination of, there must be something, you know, a bigger game story that's really interesting, but also that has some really huge implications for them. So what's sort of that role of the the mission, the bigger picture, the bigger game. How important is that in convincing, and if that's the right word, uh, the suppliers to actually start such a journey with you? Yeah, so I think in general industry, and this is certainly true of the fashion business, um, their general view is that you know we, we have to be focused on this mostly, in some cases, only because there's a bunch of government regulation heading our direction. The governments have made it very clear that the environmental footprint of the fashion industry is not going to be tolerated anymore. And you guys are going to have to change your ways. And so, you know, like the EU came out last March and said, by 2030, the fashion industry across Europe has to be predominantly circular, which, you know, that that's a big statement. I, I can't imagine that's going to happen. Um, but but it was essentially a shot across the bow, right? It was it was saying to the industry, you guys have to clean up your act, right? You cannot be dumping 92 million tons of waste around the world. You cannot be contributing, you know, four to five percent of global greenhouse gases. You cannot be doing these things that are so environmentally destructive. Um, you know, we just can't let that go on. And we're going to step in and intervene in whatever way is necessary to make that different, whether that's extended producer responsibility laws or consumer mandates for dropping things in textile bones or whatever that is, we're going to step in and try to correct that problem. And so for them, you know, they do their SWOT analysis and under threats, government regulation, right? It's like, <laughs> oh my God, this thing is coming. So, um, so they're looking at the whole thing through that lens, right? Here's an enormous threat right, heading our way. And how are we going to get out of this, right? How are we going to find our way through it? That's really a shame because if you actually look at the business opportunity around yeah, it, should, it should be the opportunity space in that SWOT analysis. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so we look at it and once again, you know, I'm speaking primarily from a fashion perspective, but I think this transcends fashion very, you know, very extensively. Um, but, you know, but first off, just on the consumer side, why would you not want to maintain the consumer relationship all the way through the product life cycle, right? It's always struck me as just insane that, you know, brands will just bend over backwards to get someone in to buy something. And then once that purchase is made, literally they'll stand at the door and wave goodbye, right? I mean, the only post-sale interaction that ever happens is, hey, come buy more stuff from us, right? Here's a sale. Here's a whatever, right? Come back in and buy more stuff. It has nothing to do with what you actually already purchased. And that makes no sense to me, right? Why, why would you ever do that? Yeah, there's so much missed opportunity for people who already has accepted, right? It's the easiest sale is the upsale, but still most, most businesses don't do anything near what you say, but they actually a lot of places they don't even bother too much to the existing clients they're so focused on new clients exactly and from a cost perspective the cost of customer acquisition is becoming just overwhelming for these companies 
because customer loyalty is constantly declining. It is, you know, you're, I mean, the average fashion e-commerce site only has 20 or 30% returning customers each month. Right. 70 to 80% of the people coming to that site are new people. I mean, that is incredibly costly, right? Because you've got to be driving those people into your site. Why would you not hold the hand of that customer through that whole product relationship saying, you know, if this product's damaged, let me fix it for you. If you're done using it, let me give you a, essentially a voucher toward value on your next purchase and take this thing back. And you lock that person into your ecosystem, right? They are, they are part of your family, right? They are going to keep coming back to you because you're providing this endless service to them. And you're even from the cash standpoint, tying them in to that environment. So you have this, you know, tremendous reduction in your customer acquisition costs. You're also boosting your customer lifetime value because now they're coming back. They're spending more, they're doing more things with you. Um, so just from that aspect alone, you think, oh my God, why, why would you not, why do not embrace this fully and, and take this on? But then you even get over to the supply side issues and, and, you know, it's really fascinating because a truly circular model gives you so much more control and predictability over your supply chain because your feedstock for future, future products is actually in the hands of your current customers. And you have all these levers you can move to control that supply, right? What sellback prices are you offering? What communications are you putting to that? What, you know, that's, it's now totally in your control how that flows. No more Panama Canal problems. <laughs> it's a different way. Exactly. It's a totally different game. Um, and it's just so much more in your control. Yeah, I just wanted to pause you for a second there because you list up so much opportunity and so much value. And then you also say that there's a mindset block. And of course, obviously, there is a ton of work to do to make these transitions of systems and change management of the people and incentive structures and sales and, you know, whatever. An endless long list, I can, of course, imagine. But when you look at this and, and your analysis and experience with trying to get the brands on board of this, what do you say is the biggest blocker or showstopper for them to actually do the work and start here and believe, really believing it? <laughs> I mean, honestly, it, it is, it's just up and down the organization, right? I mean, I, I think the ultimate stopping point for any conversation about these kinds of models generally comes at the CFO's office. If you walk in and say, oh, we're going to start to institute these new programs. And, you know, by the way, one repercussion of that is it's going to reduce the number of new sales, but we're going to actually make more revenue overall. And he says, wait, wait, what? You lost, we had less products. <laughs> repeat the first part of that again. Yeah. <laughs> so is it, is it fair to say that their understanding or lack hereof, the actual circular approach and the opportunity side, the business side to circularity, that because they don't get that, they never really listen and take it in and thereby just sort of discourage it basically upfront, the second you mentioned that, by the way, it will mean lower sales. Oh, completely, completely. But, but, but to be fair, they've never seen it working any other way, right? No, of course. So I, it's not that I, 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 it's not that I don't get it, right? No, no. I understand where they're coming from. Yeah. And, 
um, you know, if you can create a model where suddenly they, they're looking at something that's working and can say, oh my gosh, that actually, these guys are making really great profits, right? This is a growing business. And actually, it's really interesting, you know, because there are all these movements out there about, you know, kind of degrowthing, right? Familiar with that term. And, and, you know, that is so not circular economy. Circular economy has nothing to do with degrowthing. It just has to do with shifting around how the growth is achieved. Exactly. And, you know, and so it, it really pains me when associations are made between those concepts because I think they're just completely misplaced. I think circular economy is a huge opportunity. Now, I think you really, really hit it right, right there when you say that it's the shift to powering more use, right? From selling more stuff to powering more use. I think that's really the crucial element. That's the transition. That's the understanding. Because if you do that, then, you know, it's quite easy when you say powering more use to just start imagining what kind of revenue streams comes out of powering more use, what kind of value comes out of it. Like you said, the retention rate of the customer refined, the loyalty drop in cost of acquisition for new clients and so on and so on. So, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of insight to business to see how powering more use could be a really profitable business model. And coming from that environmental point of view, that it means we need less stuff. We also need less hassle with producing all that stuff. So some of the troublesome part of running the business goes down, whereas the the parts that we really like and then we struggle with, how do we engage more with our clients and get them to actually love us? How do we create the raving fans that everybody dream about, right? That comes out of that shift. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to paint the picture that it's, you know, some kind of complete business utopia. I mean, yes, there's a lot less hassle in building new stuff, but there's hassle involved in in actually getting things back and polishing them up. And, so, you know, it's, there are a lot of hassles in there. Yeah. Well, yeah, 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 I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So, so I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that it actually, it tackles on some of the hard stuff of the current business and some of the stuff that's, as you say, is making governments say, uh uh-uh, not no longer. You gotta fix it. And you know, so some of the some of the dark clouds <laughs> in, in the distance, yeah, you know, it can tackle on that. And it can deliver lots of different value streams and up the game on something that that businesses really struggle to do and would like more of, right? So so again, I just think it's yes. and and in that I think you really articulated really fine in that from selling more new stuff to powering more use. So I really like that. Um, I think that's a really good way of framing it. It's amazing how once you make that shift, the calculus completely changes and the way you look at all different opportunities begins to shift, right? And, you know, one of the fascinating parts of it to me is that you, by bringing things into that kind of closed ecosystem, you have all these dynamics that have never really come into play before. So, you know, so one of the big things in the fashion business is, you know, the growth of fast fashion and, you know, that that's been one of the major contributors to environmental damage. And I mean, the average use of a garment has gone down 36% over the last 15 years, right? I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's declining as people buy things, they take a photo on Instagram and then they're done. First time I was, no, you've got to be kidding. That cannot be true. But what's interesting is that you throw things into a, a, a circular model, a completely closed loop system. 
and and you know we'll bear this out once we get fully operational and we got this thing out there and everything else but i i can virtually guarantee you that fast fashion is not going to fare well in that environment because as a consumer i'm looking at things not so much from the cost of the item but from my use cost of that item and if there's basically zero residual value to these things that are being made as fast fashion it's just not very appealing to me. And, and I guess going back to the business and the, the business benefits of all of this, you know, if you start actually relying on new and used products as being kind of equal partners in the sale of your, of your merchandise, you've got this built-in kind of counter-cyclical protection because generally new sales go up as the market goes up and go down as the market goes down. And new sales are the opposite, right? Yeah. That's really interesting. I haven't thought about it's it that completely, way. Completely yeah. different direction. And yeah, so I can see that. You, you, you've created those, these countervailing forces in your revenue stream that protect you against cycling. Uh, here's an argument your CSO is going to love. <laughs> Finally, after all of that, yeah. ah, now I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but once again, I think they have to see it in action. Course, right? yeah, yeah. They've got to be able to actually yeah. see that and then make an assessment. I have one sort of area that I'd like to just touch upon, and that's the role of communication. From a communication point of view, what would you say, what's the key sort of lessons that you can share with them? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think before delving into that, I'll just make one quick aside, which is on the consumer side of communication. One of the things that we've found is that education of the consumer is, is almost always a wasted effort that consumers don't they don't they don't care right i mean every, every time someone says to me you know oh we need to educate consumers about circularity i'm just like no you don't right you, you don't need to educate consumers about circularity in fact it almost works against you it's like you know oh here's you know the butterfly diagram and these are the three principles of circularity and consumers like oh my god shoot me now right i mean i i i don't want to know anything about that i mean what happens to consumers is what we observed in the checkout screen that consumers absorb and process very very quickly when you show direct incentives right at them and i really like what you say there because that's something i always keep coming back to is the fact that you know it's not the circularity it's the results that comes out of working Absolutely. with right? And that's what you say, right? Show me the result and I will like that if, if it's in my favor. I don't really care about how you got there. Just tell me that I get, you know, a better product, a lower price or an easy, convenient way to get rid of my old stuff or whatever it is, right? It's the result sites. That's that's the interesting part. It's never the, it's never the circularity in itself. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think that then crosses over into the business side, right? It's ultimately all about what does it mean to me <laughs> not about theories and all of that. It's what what does it mean to me? And I think, you know, in, in a business framework, you know, that can be positive or negative. I mean, if you're a specialist in, you know, supply chain sourcing and suddenly, you know, your supply chain becomes your current customers and the products they're already holding and those coming back through. That you you know it's still a supply chain, but it's not a supply chain you have expertise in. You don't know how to manage the you know pricing algorithms and things that can control that supply chain. 
right? You're you're out there meeting with farmers. You're out there, you know, whatever it is, right? That that's what you know how to do. And so, you know, if if you're in that position, you're going to resist this. You're going to say, well, no. Here are all the reasons that's not a good idea. Going back to the CFO, yeah, you can go to the CFO and say, hey, we can build counter cyclical elements into our whole revenue model here that'll protect us for you know decades to come. And he may think that really serves me well, right? That's that's a great thing, right? I'll look I'll look like a superstar. So it, it totally varies by audience. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the challenge in really driving this through an organization is figuring out the audience for whom that's not a positive message, where it's going to affect them negatively, or at the very least, make them uncomfortable, right? Make them question whether their expertise is going to be valuable going forward and figuring out how you how do you include them? How do you present this in a way that they can see as an advantage for them and that they can actually, you know, stick themselves into a role that leverages what they do well, maybe in a different way than they have before, but they can be successful in their jobs going forward. What about outside the organization? What's sort of the role of communication there? Because I, I mean, you, you're stitching together new value chains, new partners, new, a lot, a lot of new stuff. Like, so again, what would be the advice to the CEO considering Okay, we should we should start on this. Yeah, I mean, there are so many different, you know, constituents out there that you have to serve, right? You've got to educate your board, you have to educate investors and the whole investment community. If you're suddenly going to say, hey, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna be focused on selling new things anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that sentence alone does require a bit, a bit more. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, they're like, excuse me for a minute. Sell short, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I mean, you've got to, you've got to massage those messages. You've got to figure out what's the, what's the right way to phrase that and, and put it out. Gauge each audience independently. And then, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's got to be a lot of nuance involved. In that. Yeah. So we are facing a situation where it's it's really critical that the that the CEO who has to be in charge of this really really gets this, and then it has the ability to articulate it to a lot of different target groups, as you say, with different challenges to the message, because it's it it affects people and, and in different positions in a different way. Yeah, and I think you know it also it, it depends to a large extent on the the culture of the organization. Do you think there's a difference in your experience uh, between sort of a medium-sized company and one of these larger companies that some, I mean, you mentioned Adidas and some of the companies that you've been working with are really, really big players. Do you think it's easier or harder for a, say, 50, 100 person, whatever, and a company to uh, to go through such processes? Well, I mean, you've got multiple factors, but I think the size of the company is certainly one of those factors, just from the standpoint of you have fewer people you have to convince. There are fewer people you have yeah, to complain over. Yeah. That's right. And and I, I guess also, and I, this is not an informed comment, this is a presumption on my part, but I think if you're an SME, um, you know, a lot of your systems are not things you've built internally, right? You're using SaaS services, you're, you're using kind of external things more than a large organization would be. 
Um, and so the large organization really has to look at, or, you know, they got all these bespoke systems that now are not going to be appropriate for this new shift. And so they're going to have to rebuild it all. Whereas an SME can go, oh, well, I'll ditch that contract and sign on with these guys. And yeah. And we are up and running from much. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jen, there's been a lot of really, really interesting things here and we could easily have talked on for hours, but uh, I think <laughs> we probably should start to sort of wrap it up. So I have sure. this one question that I, that I would like to end with and it's, it's really just to sort of get a bigger picture perspective. We are facing a green transition and we need to change a lot of things um, very, very rapidly. So what role do you see that business play in general, not your company or the ones that you just work with per se, but business in general, what is that? What's the role of business in making this green transition happening and at the speed and scale that we are looking for? Well, I mean, business is critical for this transformation. If you're, and, and I'll, you know, it's focusing specifically just on circular economy and, um, you know, for the circular economy to happen, you know, you can have NGOs step in and they can, um, they can do some piloting, they can do some research, they can do, well, you know, a lot of things, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's been doing, all planting the seeds and making people aware of all this and all of that, um, but they can never scale it. On the other side, you've got governments, and governments, you know, as we talked about earlier, are, are threatening to come in full force and try to drive these changes. And, um, and there are critical roles that governments can play in this transition, right? I mean, if you, if you really want to broaden the scope of this discussion, you know, the, the fact that governments, by and large, have not intervened in the area of economic externalities, um, you know, in the fashion space, there there is no such thing as a two ninety nine t shirt, right? The only reason that exists is because you were able to just have these toxic runoffs and yeah, with pa- passing the bill into the to the to the next generation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a you know it's a false economy, and the fact that governments haven't stepped in to level that playing field and actually recognize those external costs that are affecting society. Is no, we can get a really long discussion about that, right? that is, yeah. you know. But but there are some tangible things that governments can do to really expedite the circular economy. Um, you know, in the fashion space, if government were to step in and say we're going to have extended producer responsibility laws and we're going to base those around quotas, and those quotas are tradable. So if you as a big company don't want to kind of go get X percent of your things back at end of use, then you've got to buy credits from companies that do want to take that on. That would dramatically accelerate the transition because companies like ours could finance our whole operation by selling those credits, right? I mean, that's how, as you probably know, that's how Tesla still makes a profit, right? They don't make a profit off the cars. They make a profit off the you know, tradable emission credits. They made, you know, 1.4 billion last year on tradable emission credits. Oh, and I knew that number before, but yeah, amazing. So there, there are, you know, there are huge things that government can do to expedite the process. But I don't believe government is the answer because government-imposed regulations are almost always inefficient by nature, right? There are diseconomies that go into the way those things get implemented. Um, and if you want to truly get a solution, you, you need to have business involved and business has to be driving on incentives built around maximizing their well-being, right? Um, you know, I think, you know, one tangible example in what we do is that the whole idea of having government mandated 
textile bins and consumers have to throw things in those textile bins. Sounds great, right? Hey, there we solved the problem, right? We've kept all this textile out of landfill, but you actually are not creating a circular environment because people, the time things get thrown in a textile bin is when someone actually decides they're done housing it, right? Has nothing to do with the use of that item, has nothing to do with the timing of when those things, I mean, you're still going to get 95% of things coming through that system that are still wearable. They just said, I'm done with it. I don't have anything else to do with it. I'll throw it in the textile bin. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the circular problem. It's not achieving circularity. It's just kind of this band-aid that solves one aspect of the problem, which is keeping things out of landfill. Yeah. It's business that needs to jump in and say, hey, wait, we've got this incredible opportunity to engage our customers through the whole life cycle and get these things back the moment they're not using them and give them that value that they can reinvest in new products that we can sell them. That, you know, that, that, you know, it's all driven by business sales. And business then can raise the capital to scale those things. Well, I think that's a really, really good place to end this, even though it would have been nice to just do a couple of hours, but lots of stuff we could talk about. Uh, but Jonah, I just want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights and experience. It's been extremely interesting uh, and a lot of good uh, points uh, to, to pick up on, uh, I think, for a lot of people listening to this. So, uh, so thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me. All right. And best of luck with it. Thank you. You've listened to Green Business with Impact. You can get more insight on how to create circular business on bwimpact.com. If you want to get in touch, you are very welcome to connect with Jasper on LinkedIn. Just type in Jasper Steinhausen. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcast episodes, please contact Jasper js at bwimpact.com.